Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for joining our session. My name is Michalis Petropoulos. I'm Director of Engineering for Amazon Redshift. And with me, I have Errol Guni from Workday, who's going to talk to us about uh, data as a service and how Redshift powers his application. Uh, I've been with AWS for four and a half years now, and I've been building database systems my entire life, professional life. And uh, I'm here to explain to you, to help you, uh, give you the information you need to make your decision about your Redshift uh, footprint. Uh, first, I would like to start with a brief uh, journey back in time. Seven years ago, it was reInvent 2012. You can see here uh, relatively younger Andy Jassy uh, describing the tenets of a data warehouse uh, built by AWS. At the time, the tenants were, of course, revolutionary because he was talking about a data warehouse that was uh, easy to, to use and spin up. Uh, it was also easy to scale up massively in terms of compute and storage. Uh, it was also uh, very cost effective. We didn't have any upfront costs. You were just paying as you go. Uh, it was also uh, very performant. It had to be performant for the price that you're paying. Uh, at the time, he promised uh, less than $1,000 per terabyte per year, which was, of course, uh, much, much cheaper than the other options at the time. And the last tenant had to do with uh, being open and flexible to be used with other tools, uh, uh, either to load data into Redshift or uh, visualize uh, data outside of Redshift. So he announced Amazon Redshift uh, seven years ago, and uh, the service today uh, became, uh, the service at the time became the fastest growing service until 2016, for four years until we announced uh, Amazon Aurora. So today, AW, uh, Amazon Redshift uh, has, is being used by tens of thousands of customers. It is the most popular cloud data warehouse, and it's also the fastest uh, data warehouse. Uh, you can see some of the customers, some of the prominent customers that are using our service today. So the tenets that uh, Andy described seven years ago have not really changed much since then. So we're still trying to, to build a service that is uh, very performant, very cost-effective, very scalable, and very easy, very easy to use. So how do we uh, keep innovating at this pace, and how do we keep uh, expanding the service uh, in a way that uh, accommodates new use cases. We do that by pretty much listening to customers, listening to your requests. And what we have been hearing is that uh, uh, folks uh, today, customers today, they like to uh, make sure that their migrations uh, of their on-premise systems to the cloud that are being done uh, cheaply, uh, fast, and without uh, too much effort or incompatibilities. So, um, as you probably heard from Andy Jassy's keynote earlier, um, still the majority of the IT is not, has not moved to the cloud. But we see that uh, many major uh, companies are actually over the tipping point of uh, you know, d uh, trying to decide whether they're going to move to the cloud, but more in the phase that says, how fast can we move to the cloud? So it is paramount for us to make it easy to customers in order to execute these migrations. The second, uh, 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 the second set of requests that we're hearing 
is that uh, there is data explosion primarily uh, due to operational data. So uh, the data warehouses and the operational uh, data or operational analytics use cases, they are being blurred. So we see, for example, that uh, the ingestion rate uh, of customers uh, in our fleet uh, is much more frequent than it used to be. So over the years, we see that uh, our customers typically uh, ingest uh, within a period of minutes or seconds. So we need to be able to accommodate this rate of ingestion as well as the volume of data that is being ingested into the system as well. And the last set of uh, uh, requests have to do with the end-to-end -end insights, which means that uh, you don't only want to uh, have analytics on your data warehouse, but you also want to have analytics on your real-time data as well as your historical data. So you don't need to choose uh, between the two or wait or have different infrastructure uh, for one nature of data over the other. So uh, have the, uh, the ability to uh, reach over to any data that you might need to, uh, to do your analysis. So uh, especially for the last part when, it, uh, when we're talking about uh, having the ability to reach to more data, uh, what the approach that, uh, that Redshift is taking is actually being uh, fully integrated with a data lake. So the, the data lake is here to stay, and uh, uh, Redshift is the only product that actually is fully integrated with a lake, meaning that you can actually uh, ingest data into Redshift if, if you want to, but also you can actually operate directly uh, on uh, 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 lake data without having to ingest into the, into the system. This is unique to Redshift. You can run queries that join data within Redshift and open file formats uh, in S3 and uh, uh, analyze your data, okay? Without waiting for the data to be ingested into Redshift before you can act on them. Uh, and vice versa, uh, uh, Redshift also exports data into the lake, as I will show you a little bit later, uh, uh, in such a way so that uh, Redshift is not a closed system. So you can export uh, Redshift data into the lake so that other systems, other services within the AWS ecosystem can act on them. So we do that, of course, through lake formation, and uh, uh, we're tightly integrated to lake formation in order to have very tight access control as well. So uh, all of this loop that you see here is uh, secure as well. Uh, given that we're also merging or blurring the lines between the data lake and the uh, data warehouse, uh, we're calling this particular uh, architecture that we're implementing lake house approach. So you don't have to choose between the two. All right. So uh, here are the, uh, the, the today's version of the tenets that uh, Andy talked about seven years ago, uh, most of which remain the same as I mentioned. So the first one is the data lake and AWS integrated. So I'll show you how we integrate with lake formation, and then a little bit later on, I will also show you how we reach into operational data. How do we actually go and query um, operational data in uh, Aurora Postgres and uh, RDS Postgres in place without having to ingest data. Uh, best performance, we remain 3x faster than any other data warehouse. 
lowest cost, up to 75% lowest cost than, uh, than, uh, than competitors. Uh, most scalable, uh, both in terms of storage and compute, and I will explain how we manage this with the new instance uh, that Andy Jassy announced earlier this morning. Most secure and compliant, of course, this is always top priority at AWS, right? Uh, and no matter what. And we're also fully managed. Uh, we'll show you how uh, we get, uh, we optimize uh, uh, the, the cluster using machine learning and without any human intervention as well. All right, so I'm going to uh, uh, dig a little bit deeper into three of these areas, in particular the, uh, the performance and scalability, the fully managed, and the data lake integration, and uh, pick a few features. Uh, uh, because in, uh, in reality, we developed more than 200 features uh, and enhancements in the last 18 months. So uh, we're trying really hard uh, to keep the rate of innovation high and to deliver value to customers as soon as possible. All right, so looking into specific three areas on the left-hand side, you can see that I'm talking about uh, performance and scalability. That's the first row. Uh, data lake and AWS integration is the second row, and uh, the uh, fully managed uh, efforts are the last row. I'll give you a few seconds to scan this slide. I'm going to present it uh, towards the end as well. Um, but I am still going to focus on some of them. Um, uh, the good thing about the, you know, having tens of thousands of customers is that we have many uh, heterogeneous customers, so many diverse use cases. So uh, we have to cater, of course, to all of them, and some of these features might apply to your use case uh, more than others. Uh, but I'll focus a little bit on, on, the, on the major ones that uh, uh, might affect your... Uh, uh, bottom line or uh, performance uh, the most. So the first one that I'm going to talk about is uh, the new instance that we announced today, RA3, uh, with Amazon Redshift managed storage. So let's see what this means. Um, so I, I, on the left-hand side, I, I, I show the data in the, in the warehouse, uh, actually data that are being ingested into a data warehouse. This is the blue line that you see. And then I also show you the yellow line, which is the enterprise data um, that uh, might land in, uh, in one storage system or another. So uh, of course, having the ability to scale compute and storage separately is very beneficial here, because you want to have access to all enterprise data at all times, but you don't query them necessarily all the time, right? So you, uh, uh, you scale your storage so that you can fit all the data of interest, and you scale your compute in order to make sure that the most important queries run fast. So uh, we achieve this with the, with the new instance that we released, and the way we're doing this is that uh, we're now having the Redshift cluster that you see on the right side operating on a Redshift managed storage layer. Um, if you're wondering, uh, uh, this managed storage layer that we're using right now uh, is S3, but of course, uh, uh, this is transparent to you. You don't have to worry about where we keep the data. In addition to the managed storage layer, we also have the yellow caches that you see right next to the compute nodes that you buy, the, the RA3 nodes. And uh, we automatically, out of your entire data set, we intelligently identify based on your query patterns uh, which data is hot, 
and we bring the data close to compute. So the most frequently accessed data are close to the compute and your queries run fast. And uh, when I'm talking about bringing the data close to compute, we're being very selective. So uh, the granularity is not, for example, a table or a column or a set of rows, but it is specific columns of specific rows that we cache, which makes the, 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 whole, the whole system um, very flexible. So we are uh, identifying with high precision the hot data and we'll bring it close to compute. Uh, we're also changing, uh, based on this instance, we're changing the, 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 the billing model. So you pay separately for compute and storage. Um, and uh, it is uh, fully automatic to you, so you don't have to decide which data is hot, which stays in the cluster and which doesn't. Uh, uh, this is uh, fully managed within the service. Um, and in addition to the new instance, uh, or because of the new instance, uh, we have very, uh, very fast network access uh, or network connection between the compute nodes and the Redshift managed storage. So uh, whenever uh, you're querying data that are not very close to, to compute, you don't fall off a cliff. So the query uh, that, that needs uh, data not cached is going to run a little bit longer, uh, but uh, uh, there isn't going to be a big difference between the, between the two. All right, so uh, talk a little bit about uh, pricing. So the on-demand price is $13.04 per node per hour, and for storage, you pay $0.24 cents per gigabyte per month, okay? So, uh, and it can scale into tens of petabytes. Um, so uh, uh, this is pretty much uh, the vast majority of the use cases that we see today they are covered by um, uh, this limit. All right, so these, uh, these instances, they are very well suited in particular for current customers that are using uh, dense storage to 8XL nodes, DS2 8XL nodes. Uh, and uh, uh, customers see today up to 2X the performance and uh, 2X the storage capacity for the exact same price. So we made sure that we're implementing this particular instance to make it a no-brainer uh, to move uh, your use case uh, where you have a lot of data from current instances to the new RA3. So same cost, uh, up to 2x performance, 2x storage capacity, all right? Um, we still uh, uh, have the, the 3x uh, price to performance ratio compared to any other data warehouse. And even the smallest instance, uh, the smallest cluster that you can instantiate with an RA3, it can uh, hold up to 120 uh, terabytes compressed. So the starting point is also very uh, economic. These are uh, three quotes from customers that have already tried the, uh, the new instance. And uh, you know, you can, uh, within the text, you can identify a little bit of different use cases. Uh, some of them, they wanted to, um, fit more data into the cluster and make sure that the hot data remains close to compute. Uh, others that were just looking uh, uh, purely for performance improvement and all three got both. So performance improvement, uh, higher capacity, same cost. Uh, and of course, you know, you are free to choose uh, uh, lower cost for same performance. 
So uh, we also give you the, uh, the ability uh, to choose between the two, right? All right, so this is uh, a major effort for us because uh, uh, now it, it, it enables the customers to really um, decouple the two and have the ability to, uh, to scale them separately. So uh, a, a big deal in terms of performance as well as um, storage scalability. All right, uh, the next uh, big uh, announcement this morning that Andy Justy uh, mentioned uh, was Aqua. So Aqua is uh, what we're doing to pretty much um, achieve a 10x improvement uh, in terms of per, uh, price to performance ratio. So the, uh, and the RA3 is the, the 2x that we have delivered today and Aqua is in preview and it will deliver a, a 10x in total um, in terms of price to performance ratio. Uh, and uh, of course, this is working uh, under the covers, fully managed, you don't have to do anything. Um, and uh, the way that we're doing this is that uh, we're putting the Aqua uh, uh, layer between the Redshift uh, cluster and the, uh, uh, the, the S3, uh, and we embed the Aqua nodes, as you can see on the left, within the common uh, Redshift uh, managed storage layer. And what exactly is Aqua? Aqua is a very uh, fast processing layer. Uh, it is uh, a set of nodes that allow us to push compute very close to the data. So we pretty much decouple compute in this case, and we're saying that whenever we're executing queries, before we actually uh, put any data on the network, we are going to apply filters, uh, projections and other things that will cut the amount of data that we need to pass over the network. So it's first of its, uh, first of its kind. It, it uses uh, custom hardware uh, developed by us, and uh, it's going to give us the next big wave in terms of um, price-to-performance improvements. All right. The, the third uh, part that we, uh, that we announced uh, uh, recently is the new encoding, AZ64. This is the new uh, compression encoding, and uh, uh, this is part of uh, both the performance efforts as, also, uh, as well as the fully managed. You don't really need to choose encoding anymore because the nice property of AZ64 is that it achieves uh, great uh, savings instead of storage footprint as well as performance. You can see on the right-hand side uh, the comparison with other popular uh, encodings, raw LGO and Z-standard, and you can see that uh, uh, AZ64 hits it right in the middle. So it has the footprint of Z-standard, which is very effective in compression, and uh, it's faster even than raw. Uh, at this point, uh, where we are uh, uh, providing the AZ64 for numeric and data, uh, date time data types, uh, but of course, uh, um, the uh, AZ64 for uh, character uh, columns is coming soon. All right. So AZ64 encoding, as I mentioned uh, a moment ago, is a part of our effort to improve performance. Uh, uh, and especially we focused last year uh, on the out-of-the-box performance. So without any tuning, how are we going to make the system perform? Uh, without having to choose short keys or disk keys or any of that, uh, how do we make the system performant? So 
uh, what we managed to do year over year, as you can see here from, it's actually not even year over year, is from June 19th to November 19th, we managed to get the 2.35x speed up uh, out of the box, okay? So uh, when we're creating tables, there is no choice of encoding, there is no choice of distribution or sort key, there is nothing. We just create the table without any options and we insert data, that's it. So um, uh, apart from the AZ64 encoding, you can see in the list other efforts that we implemented, that we, we, all of it, which you get for free. Uh, Bloom filters is one of them uh, for both collocated and distributed joins, again, to reduce the amount of data that we put over the network. Uh, enhanced query planner for modern CPUs, so we, we are making the plans, uh, um, uh, we tune the cost model so that uh, we produce plans um, that uh, benefit uh, the, the specific cluster size. Uh, we're using hyperloglog -log statistics in order to more accurate, accurately estimate the number of distinct values that affects whether a join is going to be distributed um, uh, on both sides or one of them. Uh, and uh, we're also uh, uh, optimizing aggregations and joins in terms of cache uh, hits and misses. Uh, uh, in order to accelerate such queries, which are common, of course, on Redshift. Right. So uh, the last, uh, next to last, actually, uh, feature that I'm going to talk about uh, is materialized views. So uh, materialized views is, of course, a well-known concept within data warehouses, um, especially valuable for use cases where uh, you have fast ingestion and you have uh, tens or hundreds of users uh, uh, accessing the newly ingested data on top of the system, right? So the big deal here is that as data come in, you update the materialized view once, and it's being queried hundreds of times. And of course, the materialized view, uh, being able to materialize joints, filters, and aggregations, uh, provides orders of magnitudes improvement over um, uh, executing the query on base tables. Uh, this, uh, this feature targets specifically the, uh, the dashboard use cases, uh, where a lot of users are executing uh, the exact same query, right? Uh, so uh, the nice thing about materialized views is that uh, they're incrementally refreshed, meaning that uh, if you're uh, just adding a few more rows to your fact table um, every minute or, or every few seconds, uh, then we're going to use only that data in order to update the view. We don't recompute the entire view, right? Uh, but on the other hand, it is uh, user-triggered at this point. So you choose when to, ref to refresh the view. If you want to refresh it right after every ingestion, you can do that. If you want to refresh the view once a day or uh, once an hour or once a minute, you can do that as well. So it's up to you uh, of uh, how many materialized views do you, you want to have, and how often do you need to, um, uh, to refresh them based on your business needs, right? So it's very flexible. Uh, of course, it also make it faster to migrate into Redshift because uh, traditional database systems, on-premise systems, uh, 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 users, customers have been using materialized use. All right. Uh, the next one is the support for spatial data. So we have introduced some uh, well-known geometry uh, data types. So it's actually one geometry data type that you can be specialized into multi-point, multi-line string, multi-polygon, and so on. 
Um, at this point, we have implemented about uh, a little bit more than 40 functions that will let you ingest data um, and manipulate data. And on the right-hand side, you can see a nice visualization of uh, Airbnb locations in, uh, in Berlin. And the, the heat map that you see there shows the density of the Airbnb offerings. Um, and uh, if you're wondering how a query looks like, uh, this is the, the same query pretty much, uh, but uh, here we display the, the points individually. You can see at the bottom there that um, we're using functions such as st within, which are well known from the post-GIS lingo. Uh, uh, so we're making sure that each shape stored uh, in Redshift, uh, which is pretty much a point of an Airbnb offering, is within a particular polygon. Okay. And uh, the last one, uh, in terms of performance and scalability that I want to talk about is concurrency scaling. This is a feature that we announced uh, last reInvent with GA end of March. And uh, uh, of course, we have continuously been improving this feature. And uh, the way it looks today, you can see on the right-hand side here, is that we can actually scale up to uh, more than 12,000 queries per hour. Uh, using uh, uh, two, uh, 220 concurrent sessions. Now, uh, of course, somebody might say that in OLTP systems, you know, these numbers are per second, not per hour. But remember that the workload that we're talking about here uh, is uh, very similar to TPCDS. So we're talking about heavy join queries here. Okay. So uh, the important thing is that we don't only reach the number that you see there, which is a, a significant throughput. Uh, but we also reach it linearly. So as you are adding more and more clusters, uh, concurrency scaling clusters, you actually uh, get um, uh, almost linear increase in your throughput. And remember that uh, concurrency scaling, when you enable it, uh, you just choose how many clusters you want to engage, uh, and uh, the system engages the clusters automatically and disengages the clusters automatically based on the workload. Um, and um, you only pay for the time that you're actually using the cluster. I mean, running a query, not being attached. And uh, for uh, the majority of our customers, 97% of them, uh, the one hour free, the free one hour a day that we're offering is sufficient. Um, okay, so I'll move on. Um, I'd like to, to move a little bit on the data lake and the AWS integration and focus a little bit on the initial tenant that, uh, that I mentioned about the openness of, uh, of Redshift uh, and the data warehouse scenario and talk a little bit about the uh, federated query. So uh, in particular, what, uh, what is uh, amazing about this feature is that you can see at the, on the right-hand side that uh, you can actually access uh, open file format data in S3 that landed there using any of the AWS services, right? Kinesis, Kafka, anything you can think of. Uh, you can query the Aurora Postgres uh, SQL data. Uh, this is your operational data store, right? Uh, uh, and, uh, or, and or the RDS Postgres uh, SQL. And join the data or union the data with your Redshift ingested data in one statement. Right? So this opens uh, the, uh, many different possibilities, right? You can uh, uh, think, for instance, that you can have um, 
uh, a query like this. Uh, on the left-hand side, you can see there that you have uh, a data set in S3. These are line items. Uh, you have uh, data in the public schema within Redshift, and you have data within the APG, this is the Aurora Postgres, uh, within line item, and uh, you create a view that unions all this data. And then all of a sudden you can write a query that you can see on the right side that spans three different data stores in one shot, right? So this, this is very flexible and very open because uh, you can now have access to real-time data, really. And you can choose to ingest the data at a different frequency, potentially, uh, than you know, uh, having to ingest the, the operational data into the warehouse in order to operate on the data. So uh, this is pretty significant. And of course, it makes it also easy to, to move data, to ingest data from the operational store into Redshift. This is yet another query. right? It also allows you to do analytics on, the, on your operational store, if you think about it. I mean, you can have, let's say, three Aurora databases, and you would like to execute a query across all three of them uh, and create a report. You can do that too. You don't have to have Redshift data. Uh, Redshift is a very uh, performant, uh, massively parallel engine that you can use it with data only in one of the stores, right? Okay, so this feature is also in preview. We can see, you can actually see on, on our website in the What's New, uh, how to get your hands on the build that actually have, has this feature and try it out for your use case. All right, um, I'll talk a little bit about the data lake export in Parquet. Uh, uh, again, uh, referring to the lake house case where we access data uh, within S3 without having to ingest and having the ability to actually uh, create tables, in S3, in, uh, create data in S3 in Parquet format so that other services within AWS uh, can act on the data. Uh, still, this is another effort of uh, Redshift being an open system. So you can see here the actual command on the right side. Uh, you can say unload a, a SQL query uh, to this particular uh, S3 bucket. Uh, the format is Parquet, and you can also partition it by a specific column. And we will automatically uh, generate the partitions and put the files uh, in the appropriate buckets. Uh, remember that the query that you can put under unload, it can still point to any storage system. I mean, you can use Redshift, for example, uh, to do uh, some uh, ETL from S3 to S3. So you can say unload, select, uh, select star from a table uh, in S3, do some transformation in the select clause, and then output it again into S3. Again, you're getting the benefit of, of uh, Redshift being a very performant engine without necessarily having to uh, ingest data into it. All right, uh, I'm gonna go a little bit faster now because I need to uh, allow some time for Errol to, to, to talk to us about uh, his use case. Uh, so um, I'm gonna focus a little bit on the, on the management side. So when we're saying fully managed, what exactly do we need? I don't need to do anything or uh, is, is there something more to it? So uh, we, uh, we, we see the, the fully managed or the ease of use, if you will, 
in three different ways. The first one is that it's fully managed, so if you don't want to do anything, you don't have to do anything. So uh, we're going to um, take backups for you, uh, we're going to uh, figure out how to organize your data and so on in a default way. But uh, we're also focusing on the automatic optimizations. So looking at, the, at, at your workload, we're trying to uh, organize the data differently in order to benefit your workload without you needing to do, needing to do something explicit. And the last one is that if you really want to customize it and uh, you, want, you, want, you know your use case uh, much better than the system can, you still have the ability to do so. so. Let me get into a few more details of what I mean by these. So the first one is the auto vacuum, auto analyze, auto table sort. This is the fully managed aspect. So uh, what we have done here is that uh, you don't have to execute auto, uh, 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 analyze anymore. We automatically go and gather statistics. We update the statistics. We make sure that the, um, uh, that you, the, the query plans that we're generating are, uh, uh, are the good ones based on our cost model. And uh, of course, we do this uh, incrementally. We do this when the cluster has pair cycles and without intruding into, into your workload. Uh, we did the same thing for opt uh, automatic vacuum delete, where we go and reclaim the space as you are deleting data. And uh, uh, we also did the automatic table sort. This is the, the uh, most recent announcement, uh, which I'll talk a little bit more in the next slide. Uh, we also have the automatic table distribution style, meaning that when you're creating a table, we automatically distribute it everywhere because it's small, uh, meaning empty. And then as you are, as you are ingesting data into the table, uh, uh, be beyond a certain threshold, we will on the fly convert the table from dist distrib distributed everywhere to distributed evenly everywhere. Uh, so distributed evenly and uh, uh, without you having to, to act on it, right? And we do that mid-transaction. Um, and uh, we're also having the distribution and sort key advisors, meaning that uh, we observe your workload, we're figuring out based on the workload which distribution and uh, sort keys will benefit your workload, and you can choose to do so. Uh, let's dive deep a little bit into the automatic table sort. Uh, uh, it's a quite sophisticated uh, way of, uh, of doing this uh, for the following reason. Uh, as you can imagine, fact tables, especially now with the uh, managed storage, the fact tables can get really big. So we don't have the option, of course, to uh, automatically, uh, sorry, to sort the entire table, like ever. So how do you deal with it, right? So what we're doing is that um, within the table, we're trying to figure out the sections that are becoming hot, and then we isolate these, data, these uh, ranges that are being asked the most by queries, and then we sort only these regions within a table. We do not, we never sort the entire table, right? So, uh, and we do that on the fly as well. Uh, and incrementally, so you don't have to, uh, to sort really your table uh, manually anymore or in its entirety, and you get the benefit, uh, performance benefit, without having to, to sort the whole thing. So, uh, and this is intelligent in the sense that uh, we don't create homogeneous partitions. Doesn't mean that, you know, all of a sudden we partition by month blindly, because, you know, let's say that June, July, August, are, uh, might be one range because they are slow months for a particular business. 
And then September becomes really hot because uh, everybody cares about September. This is when we're back to school and we're buying more items and so on and so forth. So we will recognize this particular month, isolate it from the rest, and merge and sort it. So you get the, uh, the most benefit out of it. OK. Um, the, the next one, uh, briefly I'll discuss about the, the management console. We have a, a brand new, very nice looking console where you can actually see uh, in more detail uh, uh, what your cluster is, uh, is, uh, is doing. Um, and uh, you can also use the query editor for non-admin users uh, in order to execute queries against your database easily and visualize them as well. Um, I'm going to run very quickly over the query priorities. Uh, this is also uh, a very nice feature in the sense that with query priorities now, you can say that a particular set of queries is more important than others. Um, and this is a very nice way of actually maximizing uh, the utilization of, of the hardware that you're paying for. Because let's say that uh, my queries are more important than yours, but if I am not using uh, my slots, if I, don't, I haven't submitted any queries, then you can go ahead and use the resources that I would have been using. So uh, no resources go, uh, uh, are wasted. There is no static separation of resources based on priorities. Um, and of course, uh, while lower priority queries uh, occupy the entire cluster or, or all of the resources, and then all of a sudden the higher priority queries show up, then we make space for the more important queries. And if we cannot do that fast enough, we're going to preempt queries. Okay? Uh, but this is, uh, this is really important in order to maximize uh, both performance as well as throughput. And the system, uh, also intelligently based on uh, automatic workload management, will figure out how many resources, how much memory a query might need based on the shape of the plan and uh, allocate uh, the corresponding memory. All right. So very quickly, store procedures. This is also a feature that has to do with the migration of uh, existing um, systems into the cloud. Uh, we're speaking the, the PLPG SQL uh, dialect. Um, and uh, this feature has, uh, as you can imagine, uh, really uh, very high adoption uh, since it was uh, released. And uh, this is the last slide I'm going to flash one more time for you uh, to, uh, to look at the rest of the features and dig a little bit deeper. So um, I skipped over the elastic resize scheduler, uh, where it can optimize your cost by sizing the cluster up and down at certain uh, times uh, during the day. Uh, the cross instance restore that will help you migrate uh, DS2 8XL clusters to RA3, the new instance, in minutes. Um, uh, we have much, much faster cross-regional copy uh, for disaster recovery, um, deferred maintenance, and elastic resize. So uh, with that, I will leave you. And uh, I'll ask Errol uh, to come on stage in order to present the Data as a Service product at Workday. Thank you, Mihalis. Hello, everyone. My name is Errol Gnei. I've been at Workday a little over five years now. So we at Workday deliver cloud-based financial and human resources applications. Um, particularly, I really enjoy working cross-functional teams, designing, coding, delivering, and seeing customers use our applications. 
day to day and do it all over again with challenging work. Today, I would like you to take away two points from my presentation. One of them is understand the workday's data as a service, vision, and strategy. And secondly, and more pertinent to today's session, is learn how Amazon Redshift powered our design goals and empowered our Workday Data as a Service team to deliver and focus on our business objectives. Today, I might be talking about a forward-facing statements. And at Workday, we encourage our Workday customers to make their purchasing decisions based on the currently available features and functions. Let's go over how Workday Data as a Service started. Workday has an annual customer conference. We call it Workday Rising, typically around September, October each year. And some of you may have been at that conference if you are a Workday customer. Here in 2016, Workday Rising, my company executive went on to stage and announced that Workday will unveil a Data as a Service offering, and benchmarking will be the first service for that. Benchmarking service will let the customers to pick the metrics that they like to contribute and in return gain access to insights for those benchmarks across their peer groups. After the Workday Rising event, we interviewed several of our executives and came up with two high-level business goals for the product. One of them was that all Workday customers should be able to use these services inside their Workday tenant natively. And second business goal was that the Workday customers would have to contribute their de-identified data to be able to get insights for the same metrics. We call that give-to-get model. In Workday, we try to follow a culture of delivering on our announcements by the next Workday Rising. Here in Workday Rising 2017, we have delivered Workday benchmarking. And on the left, you can see our company CEO, Anil Bushri, talking to Kramer on the Mad Money Show, talking about the Workday Data as a Service and benchmarking product. And on that day, we not only delivered a, a platform and a service, we've also signed up 100 plus customers in less than a year. Just to give a comparison, today we have enough customers to represent 100-plus country and produce benchmarks for them. So let's take a look at what it looks like. Here, if you're an HR administrator, you might run this report to get insights in your industry and compare your own company's turnover to an industry peer group. And if you are an administrator again, you might run a more broader benchmark report that gives you more diversity benchmarks and also build visualization for all your benchmark quantiles and have side-by-side -side comparisons with your company's values. So let's take a look at how we did it. Let me introduce you to my mentor. Mark Twain has famously said, the secret of getting ahead is getting started. 
For me, what this means is you have to take your complex, overwhelming business goals and break them into must-have tasks and start working on them one at a time. So let's take a look at what are our must-have architectural tasks. So we have to have global data architecture. That is because Workday has more than 10 data centers across the world. For a service like this, in order to be able to compare your company benchmarks with that of industry groups across the world, it had to be a global storage and architecture. It also had to have security from the beginning with transport layer and encryption at rest. We also had to address all privacy concerns because this was a true global service. We had to learn about the GDPR requirements, country level compliance requirements, legal agreements, and opt-in services. I also had architectural flexibility as a must-have. That is because this was a very infant product and I needed to be able to adapt based on the customer feedback. So only build complexity when and if needed. And of course, since this was such a global product, it had to have common taxonomy across all tenants. So let's see how Amazon Redshift met the design goals of our DAS. I mentioned architectural must-have. Let's try to map them to solutions. So one of the architectural must-haves I had was a scalable, secure global storage. That meets Workday's SLA. That is Amazon KMS and Amazon S3. We also needed the ability to programmatically evolve both the schema and the data at the same time. That required read-after-write DB consistency. On top of that, we needed a single master federated storage and database. That is because for our North American customers, European customers, Asian customers, or African customers, we would like to release the benchmarks at the same time. We also had the requirement that the customers could opt in at any time without talking to any workday support or, or, or an employee. That meant that we needed the ability to process large number of files that we'd not, we could not have had time to predict. On top of that, we needed advanced analytical query capabilities with arbitrary dimensional data sets, with window slicing, partitioning, and Amazon Redshift was the single solution at that point with elasticity that was required for our platform. Here I like to show a high-level diagram of our data flow. And here the Workday Cloud is talking to our DAS backend using the microservices architecture. We have, since the 2007 announcement of delivering it, we have also enabled external data sets on the platform. Today, we have the following data sets on the DAS platform. On the first release, we released the platform itself. We also released the benchmarking service that sits on top of the customer contributed data. Since then, we have enabled the public data sets 
U.S. Census Bureau is one of the examples, and we are trying to add more countries as we go through. We are also actively partnering with additional data providers to bring data exchange on our platform. Let's have a look at one of the public data sets that we have in production. Here's a U.S. labor market data set that customers could get it today in production. And perhaps more entertaining one of them is occupation by geographic location. As you can see, we can bring so much more data to the platform. To be able to bring all these data sets to the platform, we need elastic scalability, not only compute, but storage. So this really pertains to today's announcement that in order to be able to scale the compute and storage separately is very critical to our platform. With that, I'd like to review the Workday's data-as-a-service offerings and what is next for us. So we have delivered the benchmarking service. We have then delivered the external data sets. We are actively working on machine learning use cases and what we name in-context use case. This is a particularly important concept for us. You can visualize the case where a worker submitting their time off event and a benchmark right next to their page that shows them an average time of event taken by a similar worker in, this, in the similar geographic area. And keep in mind that Workday Cloud represents 40 million active workers. So if all customers opt into this solution, we cannot predict the load, and we do not want to scale for the max use case. Therefore, we need the compute scalability as we need it. Another in-context interesting use case is that imagine you're submitting an expense report and you can get a benchmark that represents the median price paid for the same hotel or same trip that you're just taking and paying for through your expense report. On top of that, we like to bring partners and have them self-service enable themselves onto the platform. For those two use cases, today's announcements are really critical for us so that we can separate the storage and compute and scale them independently. With that, I would like to give it back to Michalis to speak about the related sessions for our talks. Thank you. Thanks again for coming today. These are, we're listing some of the related sessions around Redshift. Uh, we have a lot of uh, child talks and uh, uh, other workshops that digging deeper and hands-on experience with uh, most of the features that I presented. So uh, please attend them. Also, you can visit us at the booth as well. So thanks again. Uh, I'm Michalis and this was Errol. And please uh, remember to uh, complete the survey for our sessions. Thank you.